Hey everybody, thanks for joining me this week. Uh, this is a special bonus episode. Uh, so bonus uh, that I it's the day after the, our last episode with Sarah Pocock. Uh, this episode is with Kelly Carlin. She talks about growing up with her father, George Carlin, uh, her history as a uh, writer and a performer, and her new show, A Carlin Home Companion, uh, which is going to be at the Acme Comedy Theater this weekend, May 18th at 8 p.m. It's 135 North La Brea in Los Angeles, 90036. Why not give you all the information? Um, I will put all the links on the website, but definitely go to kellycarlin.com, uh, which uh, will have everything you need. Follow her at kelly underscore carlin. And enjoy the rest of this episode. Obviously, no clips, um, because it's just me talking uh, with her, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, a great episode, so enjoy it. Hey, everybody, thank you for joining us. Uh, this week, I have with me Kelly Carlin. Hey, I'm here. Being, thank you for being here. It's my pleasure. I feel like I'm in the cocoon of comedy nerdness. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> That's the best possible compliment I could possibly get. Excellent. Uh, uh, the uh, it, w- it was nice. I got contacted. At, and <laughs> uh, I was asked if, if I would like to have you on my show, to which my answer might have been, are you fucking kidding me? But I instead <laughs> said, yeah, oh, great. That'd be nice. Wonderful. <laughs> so, yeah. So um, you were doing, let's start off, you're, you're doing a show right now. Yeah, I've been doing it for about two years now. Holy cow, really? Yeah. Is yeah. it? Is it? Are you developing it, or is it the same thing? Oh, no, no, I'm done, I'm done developing it. We're That's going to New York so in the fall with it. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, we started developing it in uh, around this, well, actually, way earlier this time of year, uh, in 2011. Okay. Uh, in February. Uh, well, basically how it started was in the fall of 2010, mm-hmm. uh, Louis Black invited myself and my husband on a cruise ship that he was he was doing a comedy cruise like this he was just like he didn't know if he wanted to do this or not but he's like fuck it i'm gonna bring people i want to hang out with on this cruise ship and it was like a normal size royal caribbean Mm -hmm. 2000 people craziness but they were gonna have 400 hardcore lewis black fans come on board and then he invited like six or seven of his stand-up friends to come and just mm-hmm. kind of rotate each night. Someone opens, someone features, someone headlines. Crazy. And then he had a couple of daytime slots that he needed to fill. Uh-huh. And he said, and he knew I was a storyteller. Mm-hmm. And he's like, can you just come on and like, I don't know, play some videos of your dad and tell some family stories. Right, right. And I'm like, sure, anything <laughs> to get on a cruise ship for seven days of with course. Louis Black, Kathleen Madigan, John oh Bowman, Ted Alexandro, John Panette. Wow. Um, uh, uh, I can't, a couple of other people I can't remember. Uh, it was insane. It yeah. was insane fun. Yeah. So I literally, like, the morning of, like, I had a couple of compilation DVDs of my dad's, mm-hmm. and I was like, okay, what are we going to do here? I don't know. We'll do Johnny, he, he did a Johnny Carson thing. Mm-hmm. We did this, and I just kind of did, like, 40 years of my dad's whatever it was and then mm-hmm. I was like alright 1960 uh, my parents met in Dayton Ohio okay remember that story and I like mm-hmm. told the stories of that I tell and that my dad had told before and uh-huh. like told in his memoir sure and told at cocktail parties and right. things like that right and um people freaked out about it I bet like totally freaked out I about bet. it I bet I would have I, I don't know lost my shit and I, I was like wow really i mean like all week long people were like oh my god this is the best thing all week and mm-hmm. thank you and the comics were like laughing and crying sure. and oh my god and and then like all the agents and managers were like 
Hey kid, I think you got a show here. Mm-hmm. You could you could tour with this show, you know, and yeah. uh, evergreen, evergreen kind of a show. Mm-hmm. And so I came home and I was like, you know, it's like I I didn't like plan on like my first big creative thing after my dad died being my my life story with my dad. Right. I right. mean, it was like you know, you're kind of hoping to like you know find your own voice in your sure, own direction a little sure. bit. <laughs> but I thought, hmm, there was something about the idea of going and taking this to my dad's fans Mm -hmm. and knowing that this was, I kind of think of this as like the George Carlin farewell tour. Of course. Yeah. 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 And that really warmed my heart. Mm -hmm. Like I wanted them to connect with him on a deeper level and get to see all of who he was. And so in February of 2011, um, I was hanging out with Paul Provenza now at this point. Uh And he said, um, do you, you do want to do anything with this, you know? And I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe. And he goes, well, if you do, I want to direct it. Wow. I know. Exactly, right? That's and I was insane. like, well, if I have Paul Provenza directing it, then I know I'm not going to make a total fucking asshole of myself. <laughs> because for me, he is like the highest of comedy taste sure. there is. Sure. And uh, so he basically, within a month, had me booked at Just for Laughs in Montreal. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> in July, coming oh, up. God. So I was like, oh, okay. Oh, I guess we're doing this fucking thing. Holy shit. Yeah. So I started just going down to the Comedy Magic Club in Hermosa Beach uh-huh. and using their little side room, the lounge. Mm-hmm. Because Mike down there had always said to me, if you ever want to work out material or anything, come down, use the lounge. And I just once a week got up on stage and just started recording and telling stories and writing mm-hmm. and writing on my feet. And I'm really a writer-writer, yeah. first of all. And so right, one night I just decided to write on my feet and just see what would come out. And like two and a half hours later, I was like, Ugh. <laughs> okay, I do not work that way. I do not work that way. Yeah. I'm clearly my father's daughter in that way. <laughs> I have to have it down and then organized. Yeah. And then by the time I got to July um, in Montreal, I had it in decent shape, but I didn't have it fully memorized. Okay. I hadn't had really actualized it. So I had two-thirds of it on music stands mm-hmm. on stage right stage left which i would kind of go back and forth sure. and then in the middle i would come and do scenarios and scenes and do the acting oh, part cool. of things and then go back to the narrating or whatever mm-hmm. and um and then after we did that Provenza and i got together in the fall of 2011 and that's when we really developed it mm-hmm. we carved it shaped it had five hour sessions where you know it was like therapy and Mm-hmm. He would smoke a lot of pot, and I would cry a lot. Oh my gosh! Oh my god! <laughs> and I, I would just, you know, and tell him stories that had nothing to do with anything that would ever be on stage. But he was like sure. gathering it all in, and he was kind of the synthesizer of That's it cool. all. Okay. And so by November of 2011, it was, it was basically in the shape it's in now. Mm-hmm. And really, the last year and a half has been me getting stage time. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I had. I'm not a stand-up. Right. I've been doing storytelling around L.A. for 10 years, which means mm-hmm. 10 minutes of stage time every other month. Right, right. <laughs> Pretty much that was That's, it. Yeah. That's so I've been getting this kind of... I've been getting this amazing education about being on stage. Mm-hmm. So that's like my personal fun with it now is the script is pretty much set. Yeah. And now I'm learning how to actually live, breathe, and eating shit on stage. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> you know, I think typically if you hear if you hear about somebody who's maybe trying to tell the sort of story you're 
you're doing they might do a lot of research but it sounds more like you're just you're telling the stories you already know so yes. it sounds like that must be what people are connecting with completely it is the carlin family stories yeah. and 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 it starts off really the first half really and it's a it's two acts it's mm-hmm. a 90 minute show with an intermission and the first act is really kind of me up to age 12 so it really is the family and it's my shaping years and sure. what my dad experienced and and a good portion of that is the stories that everyone wants to, to kind of witness and feel and hear mm-hmm. about our family during those times. It was the straight 60s and the crazy 70s, yeah. basically. Yeah. And um, and then the second half of the show is, is I'm always playing videos of his, mm-hmm. and his videos are kind of bouncing off our life together or my oh, cool. life at okay. the time. So sometimes they're direct chronological you know, kind of comment about what's going on. Interesting. And sometimes it's more of a thematic thing coming mm-hmm. in, you know, either in contrast and conflict with what I'm trying to deal with yeah. at the time in my life with him, or it's supporting it in some way. Sure. So we kind of play with the video in, in all different ways. That's incredibly cool. Yeah, it's fun. That's, uh, did you, uh, if you don't mind, I, I wanted to talk to you, but we always talk about people about, their first comedy influences, but you grew up in a comedy house. <laughs> yes. I mean, I think that 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 question is answered immediately, perhaps. But yeah, it well, it it pretty much is. I mean, in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the very first time I saw my dad on TV, I was a, somewhere between two or three years old, uh-huh. and my mom was very excited. Daddy was on TV, yeah. and she got me all situated in front of the television set. Now, of course, this is 1966, most likely, so your Mm -hmm. TV was a piece of furniture in your life's enormous console thing, as you all remember. I don't know if you do, you're a little young. But, um, uh, and I guess, uh, I have no memory of this, but I guess what happened was Dad came out, you know, and introducing George Carlin, and my dad came out on stage. I don't know if it was Ed Sullivan Mm -hmm. or what it was, and I proceeded to scream and cry, (laughs) Where's my daddy? Where's oh, my no. daddy? And oh, run no. out of the room. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, but yeah, I can imagine that'd be traumatic. Because, yeah, suddenly my dad was about, you know, four inches tall and stuck inside of a box. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. The only person he scared that night. That's yeah, pretty Bringing much. Bringing pleasure to the country. And then, holy cow. Yeah. So, I mean, was it... That's so weird. From then on, I mean, it must have been a, a lot more of getting having to get used to that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, I do remember being a little older and and knowing he'd be on that night. Mm-hmm. I remember him being on the Della Reese show one night, awesome. which is a long time mm-hmm. ago, and 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 starting to feel the pride uh-huh. and understanding that my dad did something special. Yeah, and then, but that really started cementing in more when I was like seven, eight, nine years old. Mm-hmm. I tell this story in my show of the summer of 72, getting to go on tour with my dad. My mom and I went on oh tour with God. him. Yeah. And it was Kent State, Summerfest, Carnegie Hall. Those wow. were like three of the highlights. We went to lots of other places. Mm-hmm. But that's when it really became clear to me that my dad was a god to yeah. people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was 1972. Sure. Sure. You know, and, um, and that's when it hit me that that he was something special and and of course he always made me laugh mm-hmm. i mean you know um but there were awkward moments too you know sure. being a little girl in an audience <laughs> the only little girl in the audience right? when your daddy says the word cunt on stage <laughs> 
at a certain at first I was unconscious of sure. how probably uncomfortable it made other people feel. Right. And then when I got to the age where I was realizing, oh, hmm, I bet you people are uncomfortable about this right now. So that I think somewhere in, inside of me I was like, oh, I've got to act like it's really okay. Right. I'm really cool with this. You know, when I'm realizing maybe I'm not supposed to be so cool with this. Right. Who knows? But uh but yeah, I mean, so so certainly dad was an uh, but for me it was, you know, TV. I was a TV kid. Uh-huh. I grew up in front of the TV. Sure. So uh Lily Tomlin for me was yeah. the first person that I saw. I guess Lucy. Mm-hmm. Um Lucille Ball. But Lily Tomlin was the first one who was doing stuff that was like Oh, I want to do that. Yeah. I mean, she was playing a little girl right. on TV, right. you know, and it was like all the little, all the funny little girls in the country could do that character. Sure, sure, yeah, <laughs> of course. That's so good. So I think my my first, you know, besides Ethel Merman, I think probably Edith Ann was my first impression. So good, That's amazing. <laughs> do you? Um, were you? Again, we you don't have to be. I, I hate. I don't. I want. I don't want people to feel like they have to have been comedy album buyers. But was it a thing in the house to to buy a lot of comedy albums? Or no, my dad was have... really into music. Yeah. my dad was a big, big music person. He had an incredible music vinyl collection okay. that he was coll- he collected during that time, and that he told me were, was going to be my collection someday. Yeah, and it is mine now. Oh it's God. at my house. <laughs> so I have the '60s, '70s, and I have all of his jazz records oh too. Um, and I know there's comedy albums in there. He didn't play me a lot of comedy albums. Mm-hmm. He played three things that were really, really important to my education. Mm-hmm. Lord Buckley. Yes, of course. The 2,000-year-old man. Of course. And uh, Ruth Draper. Wow. Yeah. Those were the three things that he wanted to make sure that I got an education on. He probably mm-hmm. felt that the rest of it, the culture would take care of. Sure. Um. And I mean, and I remember remember some Bob Newhart, some Cosby, mm-hmm. but I don't know if that was later. I heard yeah. that earlier stuff, you know. But we, as a family, certainly watched. You know, if people like that came on, mm-hmm. we were watching them on TV. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, uh, Mary Tyler Moore show was an educate. You know, sure, love that, laugh in. Uh, Bob Newhart show, of course, and uh, and the Carol Burnett show. I mean, Carol Burnett for me was another of course oh, huge God. hero, huge yeah. hero of mine. Mm-hmm. And uh, and watching my dad be able to cry tears of joy when yeah. Tim Conway and Harvey Corman <laughs> would be going at it in a sketch toe to toe. Yeah, you know, you knew something was going on because it was making my dad <laughs> laugh in a way that you know only true comedy can can make you laugh sure. you know that real spontaneous love of the moment and appreciation of it yeah yeah was it a thing was it only sharing or was it did he ever intellectualize it with you or for you never intellectualized it yeah. never ever never had those discussions did he have that interest that you know of was he i mean was he picking yeah. it apart ah, boy you know i don't know being a kid i really don't know that sure he if he did, he was doing it on his own mm-hmm. or maybe with friends, but mm-hmm. I don't know if he was picking it apart. I know he was he was definitely a student. I mean, mm-hmm. certainly as a child, 
um, Spike Jones and Danny Kaye were the two big influences on him. Um, and but no, picking, intellectualizing, analyzing it, no, it wasn't. That wasn't part of the game. It was yeah. just a spontaneous enjoyment of the art. Yeah, definitely. Did you ever find yourself at some point? doing it yourself and sort of realizing you grew up in an environment that allowed you to examine it better? No. No? No, not at all. No? no I was uh, an unconscious uh, kid. I mean, you know, it. our house was, uh, there was some years in our household which were very, very chaotic. So mm -hmm. for a lot of years it was <laughs> survival time. Sure. There wasn't a lot of time to be um, even thinking about any of that kind of stuff. I knew for me that, and I was just writing about this the other day, there's something about that place that Carol Burnett or Lily Tomlin or Lucia Ball would take me. There's that expanded feeling when you're having enjoying a moment of comedy. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted to give that to other people. Sure. That's all I knew about it. Okay. That was as much as I knew that I wanted to be a part of that that magical expanded feeling, however mm -hmm. that is, or, or that expanded feeling that I knew my dad was creating in a, in a live audience yeah. situation. Um, as a teenager then, for me, you know, I was in high school 78 through 81, mm -hmm. so Saturday Night Live was Valhalla. Sure. I mean, it was Saturday night, you, you'd gotten your money together so you could get enough weed for the weekend. <laughs> and Haagen-Dazs ice cream had just been introduced into America. Oh, shit. Oh, no. <laughs> so it was bong hits, Haagen-Dazs, and SNL, man. Oh, I mean, God. you know, and it was, it, was, it was the original cast of SNL. It, yeah. was, it was, they were everything. And then there was Monty Python on PBS. Yeah. And that was it. Those two things were everything and affected I hung out with some very funny people in high school mm -hmm. so all of our humor was completely filtered through that it wasn't stand-up it was sketch comedy yeah and one of our dads had one of the first beta cams in LA mm -hmm. and we took it for a month and shot sketches every oh, weekend of so just good. bad bad but mm -hmm. fantastic sketch comedy mm -hmm. that we just would literally write in five minutes like okay let's go do it right now so good get our costumes and whatever you know and um and i wish it had survived i really do it was right. all on vhs or something mm. but that was and for me like that's what i thought if i was going to go anywhere that's what i thought i would go towards yeah, yeah. do you do you remember the first thing that you uh, do you remember writing like when you first decided writing was something important to you or um you know it was i was one of those people that got caught up in my confusion of my life in my 20s mm -hmm. and didn't have a lot of time to develop at all anything except for survival okay uh, at age 18, I met a man who was 11 years older than me, and we did a lot of cocaine. Ooh. Wow. <laughs> wow. So my, although I was interested in um, wanting to pursue, and I did a little bit wanting to pursue some acting, mm -hmm. I didn't realize that I had no concept of myself. I had no idea of who I was. Okay didn't realize that I probably should have been at the Groundlings, probably should have been auditioning for SNL mm -hmm. and going that character comedic actress route mm -hmm. because that's really what I, who I wanted and what I wanted to do. Instead, I was in a very bad relationship and, f and, and fucked up part of life. Yeah. 
my dad did, which I show in my show, mm -hmm. my dad did a pilot for HBO in 1984 called uh -huh. Apartment 2C. Okay. And I have a copy of Holy it. Holy shit. And I said to him, I want to be in it. Mm -hmm. And he and his writers wrote me a part as a punk rock Girl Scout who comes <laughs> to his door to sell him cookies. Oh my God. And I show the scene in my, one, uh, in my solo show. And when I went to look at it to put it into the show, and I'm watching the footage, uh -huh. and I'm thinking, God, I had... I had no training at all, and mm -hmm. I had so I had really good, good comedy instincts. Yeah, and a friend of mine, and I'm not name dropping or anything, but it means something to me. My friend Lorraine Newman, who's now uh -huh. a good friend of mine, saw that and said to me, "Why the fuck weren't you doing this work? Right, you could have been in the cast, yeah. like right then and there." Yeah. And I, and it's like I didn't, I had no concept of myself at that of age. Of course, what happened at that age was is I did that thing mm -hmm. and it sparked something in me but because I had no real training and because I was George Carlin's daughter mm -hmm. which I felt like I didn't never wanted to be put in a situation where there was nepotism or anything like sure. that I didn't feel like I had earned my okay. my my stripes mm -hmm. and so I was still knowing that I wanted to do that and everything but didn't quite had no concept of it at that point either yeah. And it took me a couple of more years to kind of get my way out of the marriage and all that kind of stuff. And mm -hmm. I ended up going to actually back to UCLA and getting my bachelor's degree. Uh -huh. um, but I look back on it now, and I, it really has been happening to me lately because about three months ago, Second City, there's a show at Second City called TMI. Uh -huh. Um, and they invited me to come and do sketch comedy with them, and they do their show, and I had a blast doing I bet, it. I bet. And it was like, 30 years later <laughs> why am i doing this now <laughs> but um yeah you know woulda coulda shoulda right <laughs> <laughs> i'm doing it now what yeah, can i say of course yeah um did you i mean uh as far as developing uh, a writing voice uh did you ever have I don't know. Did you ever have any kind of conflict, like you said, being quote unquote George Carlin's daughter? Did yeah. you have any conflicts as a writer? Yeah, or? it. You know, the big shadow thing was always there. Mm -hmm. It was tough. Um, when I I met my my husband that I ha my husband that I have now, <laughs> my one and only husband. No, my my second husband, but really the the love of my life, Bob McCall. He and I started writing in the early '90s. Uh, started writing sitcoms, spec mm -hmm. scripts, and that was like enough outside of my dad's purview sure. that it felt safe to do that okay so we wrote a bunch of spec scripts we ended up writing a b movie that actually got made it's uh -huh. rose mcgowan is in it it's called devil in the flesh oh yes of and, course and we wrote it as a total tongue-in-cheek comedy awesome. uh -huh. but you know it's b movie thriller right 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 we, we would like wake up in the morning so how are we going to kill the grandmother <laughs> i don't know how should we kill her today we had a blast writing it um <laughs> But, you know, it was, the, the shadow thing was always big with me, and um, it's always been hard for me, kind of the official Hollywood thing. Mm -hmm. It was always terrifying for me. I never sure. knew where I could fit into that. Mm -hmm. um, I had a lot of issues around it. And then when my dad did his Fox show, mm -hmm. the George Carlin show, Bob and I pitched him, uh, pitched him a, an idea for a show, for, for an episode, and he loved it uh -huh. and ended up pitching it to Sam Simon and who was running the show at the time. 
we weren't allowed to pitch it to Sam. Sam did uh-huh. n- wouldn't even allow me. Barely allowed me onto the onto Warner Brothers. Oh he, did, he didn't like. He's got a thing about nepotism. He really. Okay. okay. He, you know, he's he's an interesting guy. <laughs> I'm leaving it at that. <laughs> and bless his heart, he's. I know he's dealing with serious health issues right now. Um, but so we pitched it to my dad. My dad loved it, and my dad pitched to Sam, and Sam loved it. Okay. And my dad said, "Oh, Bob and Kelly happened to pitch it to me. Yeah, we want them to write it." Mm-hmm. So we ended up writing an episode and having a blast with that That's and awesome. everything like that. And we, you know, it's so funny how shit goes down. We ended up getting invited at the time. I mean, this is like ninety-five, I guess mm-hmm. it was at the time. Warner Brothers had this amazing sitcom writing program. Yeah, yeah. and we got invited to go and interview for it awesome. which was awesome yeah right and but see i'm george carlin's daughter <laughs> <laughs> and the thing about being george carlin's daughter is fuck the man right right and basically right. in my eyes sitcoms and warner brothers were the man right never mind that you know <laughs> you get on a staff somewhere and you write one or two scripts a season right. and you're in the room and you get great health insurance yeah. and you're getting paid about 25 <laughs> grand an episode <laughs> and you're in the club yeah and that yes eventually you can go on maybe to write a feature sure. whatever you want mm-hmm. i i didn't think about any of those steps <laughs> i just thought of the Fuck this boys club, fuck the man, fuck sitcoms, <laughs> fuck this fucking <laughs> bullshit town. I'm a real fucking artist. Right. And I didn't exactly say that word for word in for my sure. interview, sure. but I'm sure the subtext of it was there. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Because um we didn't get invited in. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Even though we had, you know, a great Mad About You spec script, we uh-huh. had a great Seinfeld and yeah. we'd already written an episode for a Warner Brothers show. Right. Right. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> I did that. Yeah. And I've been apologizing to my husband ever since. Right. Right. <laughs> We're still married. He still That's loves good. me. That's good. And he gets it. <laughs> he gets it. Um, but yeah, there's something about being a Carlin and wanting to do it on your own terms, I guess. Uh-huh. And, you know, my dad, he, he was a very lucky man. You know, he, he had moments like that in his own career where he, I mean, he tells great stories about, when he was going through the change, mm-hmm. uh, going, it sounds like he was having menopause. <laughs> I know, that's my first <laughs> When he was going through the change, you know. Um, he had been booked at like a Playboy club or something like mm-hmm. that, real straight place. Yeah. And he's already done with these places. Yeah. But he's got the contract and he's got to do it. And it, he goes on and they're making him go on. Because if he doesn't go on, he doesn't get paid and mm-hmm. da 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 And he'd already been fired from Vegas, I think, at this point. And, uh-huh. um, I guess at one night he just laid underneath oh, the piano and uh-huh. read like the little thing and like I guess it was a little tag. <laughs> just read that to the audience for a while, you know. And so I guess that was kind of my phase of uh-huh. that. You know, I just was like, Fuck you, fuck you, Hollywood, fuck you, mainstream. I'm just, a I'm a Carlin and even though I don't I have I have no right to be doing this because I have no nothing to stand on because I have no work in the world mm-hmm. but I'm gonna reject you. <laughs> I, I just love that that story doesn't end the way you expect, if only because at his hardest in that scene, he's a child, so childlike. That is the most brilliant. Completely, he's doing performance art. Actually, yeah, yeah. you know, is what he's actually yeah, doing, and that's what's so beautiful. And I, and I, and I don't. Again, I don't want to turn this into a whole. Let's examine all of his work, but obviously, you're doing a show about him, and mm-hmm. so his work is going to come into it. So, yeah, yeah. I've always had questions. Yeah, yeah. That I 
you Which know. I probably can't answer, but, but it's okay. But please ask them. But, uh, but you're going to have a perspective on it. Yeah. Uh, uh, the, the change that you're talking about specifically, uh-huh. where suddenly the hair's tied back, suddenly he's in all black. Right. Suddenly he's reflecting something he's never been before. He goes for, I'm talking about your shit versus your stuff. Right. To really laying in. Oh, you're table. talking about that change. That's, that's the change the that I'm thinking. Change. That's the change that I. I right. So I, I was I, talking I, about the straight man. Oh, sure. To the counterculture George. Of, of course. Yeah, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. But that you're talking about the second. That, and of course, counterculture George is the one that I think I first. Right. And I related to because I'm what I was in high school when I first started listening to his stuff. And absolutely. I, beard and long hair. But yeah, myself, you're talking you know, about the change. That's that was the change the that always sort of like hit me so hard because yeah, as as a kid, I'm growing up with class clown. That's the one my parents gave to me. Yes. So that I listened to it over and over again. Right. You know, memorize seven words, you know, all that good shit. Right. Okay. So I've always been curious about, and it, uh, it's my own ignorance for not going on Wikipedia, but I'd rather get it from you. Yes. You know, what did you see that brings about that sort of... Yeah. That's a very fuck the man... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Th- you know what I mean? Even though some people, The Simpsons even gave them shit about it, but you know, like, it's yeah. still very... Well, no, I mean, you know, I think basically in... Um, in 1987, he turned 50. Mm-hmm. When you turn 50, things happen in your life. Right. You really do see there's definitely less time yeah. ahead of me than there is mm-hmm. before me. And his mother had died mm-hmm. uh, a few years before that. His mother was a huge shadow in his life. Uh-huh. I mean, literally the day she died, when we came up from the funeral, he was a different, he was a changed man. Wow. There was a, a burden lifted off of him. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, it was the end of the eighties. Yeah. We had just been brutalized by Ronald Reagan for sure. eight years. Sure. It was a very difficult time to feel like a free thinker in this country. Of course. And, um, and the bullshit was, was just front center for the country to see, mm-hmm. you know, there was no more hiding it. Mm-hmm. You know, there was no more dancing around it. Um, you know, it, I mean, it's just exponential nowadays, but, uh, you know, with the Iran Contra and Mm -hmm. all that stuff, it just all started unraveling basically. And, and I think for dad, between all of that, that cultural stuff, his own personal turning 50, um, and in, he talked about in particular watching Sam Kinison screaming at the audience Mm -hmm. and, thinking why is he screaming because you have to scream nowadays right. to get through to people right because there's that much noise mm-hmm. and um he had just to, you know he was a man and i so get this because i so have this inside of me i i'm constantly wanting to evolve myself sure constantly what's the next horizon that i'm i want to move towards mm-hmm. the minute i get somewhere it's okay this is great now what yeah, yeah. And that's who he was too, lucky for us. Right. Because he was always finding his next personal edge. Mm-hmm. And he just started doing material that was just so much more on the nose commentary uh, directly, you know, mm-hmm. ab- about what was going on and not feeling any need to take care of the audience anymore. Right. There was right. something about that. He He was learning that and probably also i'm guessing because he'd had enough decades in this business Mm -hmm. and he knew he had he'd already survived i mean like 
you know, I, and I talk about it in my show, the late 70s, early 80s, he, I play a clip of um, Rick Moranis from SCTV uh -huh. doing an imitation of my dad. I have not seen this clip. It's really great. Oh my God. And it's, it, he does this thing on beets, the, uh -huh. the vegetable beets, and he's like, beets, 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 <laughs> you know, and it's like the ultimate, you know, staring at your navel kind mm -hmm. of observational humor and it's and it and it I think it my dad was in some ways very thin-skinned uh -huh. and I think it like kind of like destroyed him in some ways mm. like oh shit and the way I talk about it in my show is it's mm. like you know he he was the straight guy was a successful straight comic and then he was the counterculture guy sure. he and Pryor went out and changed the world yeah. and set the stage for all these other comics and um, and then he be, he somewhat became an institution mm -hmm. and he became in some ways part of the establishment right. for these young guys coming up yeah. and SCTV and SNL were just different creatures to him. He sure. didn't, he didn't, he loved it, but he didn't get it. You yeah, know, it yeah, wasn't yeah. his thing. wasn't his generation. And I think he realized, Oh, I'm, I need to figure out who I am again. So mm -hmm. he, that's when he started to, and that's when the stuff stuff, you know, he started mm -hmm. to kind of build in that time. Yeah. And I think the peak of that was the late eighties, I think he talks about um, the um, What Am I Doing in New Jersey show. Yeah. I think that was yeah. the first one where he really came out and had some things to say to the audience. Right. And right. that we were all kind of like, ooh, yeah. wow, yeah. this isn't going to be cute and funny all the time. <laughs> right. You know, he's got, here's a, there's an edge here. Yeah. There's an anger here. And I think he was really freed by that. Mm -hmm. I think he really was. Really, really freed by it. And then Jammin' in New York which I believe is, is, except for Modern Man, that one piece, I really believe that whole show is such um, a tour de force mm -hmm. of his voice, which he ended up building on for another however many years, 15 mm -hmm. years. Um, but man, that is just, it's pure perfection, that whole show. Yeah. And, and, I, and he really, I mean, he said, and I think he even said it to Jon Stewart in 97, you know, that after 30 years of comedy, he realized he'd found his artistic voice. Mm -hmm. He would really found it finally. Mm -hmm. And he knew who he was yeah. completely. And he didn't give a shit right. anymore right. what anyone thought about him. Mm -hmm. And of course he did because he's a comic. Sure, he wants people sure. to laugh. But um, he freed himself of something there. That's insane. Yeah. I, 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 it's just... Uh, so it sounds like it shocked you just as much as it might have the typical I think so. audience I mean, it member. shocked and it energized me because I was... Um, I always loved when he spoke a truth and it shattered something in the room. Sure. There's something about that that's so thrilling. And so, I mean, I think it's growing up at the times I did and of course him being my dad and, and witnessing the country and the way it went but you know truth tellers have always been important in my life yeah. and to have my dad be one and telling a truth that and telling it in a way that's poetic and funny yeah. and and worldview shattering all at the same time right fuck man yeah it's yeah, it's, that's, a, that's it's like exciting to be in the audience when it's happening, mm -hmm. and it's exciting to know it's my dad doing that, mm -hmm. and and it and it gives every one of us who want to express that in the world great hope mm -hmm. that we have a platform to do this too, sure, and that we want to dedicate our lives to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you? 
I, it, it's easy for a, an audience member, for somebody who, is, especially who is a stand-up, who gets to do a new hour every year or every couple of years, whatever. It's easy for me to demarcate someone's evolution. Yes. Um, harder, <laughs> maybe impossible, if you're the person doing it. Maybe a little less hard if you're if somebody who's related to them who gets to see that. Uh, but for yourself, do you do you do you get the opportunity to take a step back and actually? Are there demarcated points where you can look at your own evolution as a writer? Oh God, yes. Yeah. I mean, I I'm um. Uh, I got my master's in Jungian psychology, so like my evolution wow. is like all I ever think about. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a st I'm a storyteller that talks about myself. I'm an autobiographical storyteller, yeah. so I'm always trying to find the narrative through line in my life story. Yeah. And I, you know, doing this show, I did another one woman show in 2000, which really was the first time I sat down. My mom died in 97 okay. of liver cancer and that completely changed my life. Sure. And of course, and, but that's when I really knew it's like, oh, you can be hit by a bus any day, like shit or get off the pot, right. Kelly. Like if you want to be a writer performer, <laughs> then fucking go do it. Yeah. You know, stop sitting around going, well, when will someone tell me that I'm okay and I'm lovable? <laughs> um, and so I spent about two years and just really walked through my life and, and, and looking at my own life. Now looking back on it now in this fine year. Oh my God, I can't <laughs> believe it's 2013. Um, I mean, I really see that. I was always putting my toe in the water mm -hmm. and checking the temperature sure. and going a little further in mm -hmm. and then getting freaked out and getting out of the water. Sure. And and I was really I was a frustrated artist. I was someone who was in my home writing a lot, thinking about a lot of things, but terrified to go out in the world with it. Mm -hmm. um, I never wanted to be a stand-up. Never ever saw that yeah. as something my dad even said to me, I don't want you doing that. Really? Yeah. Which is a little difficult uh -huh, uh -huh. <laughs> to hear. Sure. Because, I mean, I made my dad laugh all the time. So yeah. I knew it wasn't that. Right, right. But a part of me thinks, well, maybe it was that. But <laughs> I get that he knew it was a fucked up life. Yep. It's a life on the road is tough. He saw what life on the road did to our family yeah. and what he had to endure. And he had an audience. Yeah. Yeah. He had an audience. Right. When you don't have an audience, it's a whole different sure. road. And then on top of that, being someone like him's daughter, yeah. you know, I'm sure he didn't want me going on stage and some drunk asshole going, hey, bring the funny Carlin out. Oh, right, right. Oh, that would have been a fun moment. Uh -huh. I would have thought I'd come back for that, though. Maybe I would have. <laughs> um, so I never wanted to be a stand-up, but I knew I wanted to be on a stage saying something to people and impacting people yeah and and doing it in a way right um and so i i did a lot of toe in the water and then back again toe in the water back again and um wrote this one woman show in 2000 sent it to sent the script to my dad it was really about my mom's death okay and i had this kind of real awakening like oh like this amazing awakening i mean i guess you could call it a spiritual awakening but really like a a sense of who I am and what my what I felt my purpose was mm -hmm. and and really the, this experience that I had around my mother's death and the intensity of it and then also growing up in this kind of crazy household that I grew up in and right. being able to I, it was called driven to distraction okay and the thesis was basically like you know so many things distract us from who we really are mm -hmm. until the very thing you don't want to happen comes in your life, which is the death of something or something big. Sure. And then you can no longer really distract yourself from it. Right. And then you realize, oh, I need to 
really live my life. That's mm-hmm. kind of was the thesis behind it. So I sent the script to my dad and, um, you know, I hadn't thought about this then, but now when I look back on it, I can really see, you know, when people talk about my dad and prior, mm-hmm. I really see that they each occupy two different universes mm-hmm. because although you think, you know, my dad, mm-hmm. my dad never talked about his life on stage. Right. Right. I mean, early, yes. Okay. Tippy was on in there. And, and I believe I said the Tippy did a number 10, five, two, or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. else was. Um, you know, and he, he pulled from his life, but he never talked about his wife. He never right. talked about his drug addiction. Mm-hmm. He never talked about any of that prior oh, on yeah. the other hand. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> would be living his life and mm-hmm. six months later he's on stage telling you what it's like to be on fire running down his driveway. <laughs> right, right. right? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I'm more like Pryor. Uh-huh. So my show was like that. Yeah. And so my dad read it and he was very uncomfortable with it. Oh no. <laughs> very uncomfortable. I didn't say anything in it that he hadn't fully admitted in public, A right. doing too much cocaine, that mm-hmm. there was a lot of arguing in our house. There was nothing uh, you know, earth shattering going sure, on. Sure. But he felt I think he felt a lot of guilt about those years okay. and it just made him uncomfortable. And he said so, but he also said, I would never stop you. You're an artist mm-hmm. and you have to do this, you know? And of course being the dutiful only child that I was, I was like, I canceled my run and I ended up only doing it three nights. Okay. So once again, I put my toe in the water, yeah. temperature felt a little warm this time. Right. I thought mm, better get out because it's making daddy uncomfortable. Yeah. And, and that's when I ended up going to grad school. Yeah. And kind of taking a whole different direction in my life uh, in 2001. And then I got out of grad school and was an intern for two years. And literally, the people that started coming into my room as clients mm-hmm. were writers <laughs> and stand-up comedians <laughs> and actors. Of course. Of course. Yeah. And it was like, oh, I'm supporting these people's dreams, helping them get out of their own yeah. way. And yet, I'm the one who wants to be out there on stage again. Right. And that's when I said, okay, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. I've got to really go for this. Yeah. Um, and d- even during that time, I did a lot of storytelling at the time. My dad came to see me once mm-hmm. do it. And uh, he said to me, well, you certainly know what you're doing up there. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. dad said that. I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, <laughs> and then I started working on a memoir because I knew that this crazy life story I had, this journey, mm-hmm. uh, being a woman, trying to find my voice. Sure growing up in the shadow of someone who had a voice. Mm-hmm. All, I wanted to tell that story yeah. very much so. Yeah. And it included my mother and father and my childhood and all that kind of stuff. And I told my dad I was working on a memoir and he was like, really? <laughs> <laughs> really? You know? And so I went and I put it on a shelf. Yeah. And I really knew. Now that was 2006. I knew. I said, okay. You know what? I'll just figure out something else to do until he's until he's gone. Yeah. And then when he's gone, I'll go do my work. Right. And it's like a horrible thing to say. Mm-hmm. And yet I didn't want to make him uncomfortable. Right. I didn't want to step. And yet I look back on it now yeah. and I think, well, would have that have stopped him? Right. You know, did right. he, did he care what people he was making uncomfortable about the things he was saying on stage ever? Sure. No, not really. Yeah. Um, but you know, uh, it's a different generation. It's a different, I grew up differently than he did. He's a man, I'm a woman. Mm -hmm. He didn't have a shadow like I did. You know, there's Mm -hmm. all that other stuff, but, um, you know, so I feel like I kept pulling myself back and hiding and 
And going off and doing other work that interests me and was important to me mm -hmm. and I think ultimately is serving me in my life sure. 100%. But, um, but, you know, it's like I, you know. But, but the weird thing is, too, is that I was thinking about this driving up here that before my dad died, I didn't know a single comedian personally. Interesting. That's interesting. Didn't hang out with them. Yeah. Dad didn't... I mean, I know Dad knew them and talked to them mm -hmm. and had influenced a lot of them. Um, and I knew he'd go into clubs and he'd check out people and sure. he was on the road. And I knew... And he had phone conversations and relationships with young comics coming up. That's cool. I didn't know any of that until after he died, okay. by the way. Because okay. I, I was living my life. Sure. And Dad had his life. Yeah. Um, but I didn't know any comics. It wasn't even part of the comedy world. Mm -hmm. was, that was Dad's life. And yes, I had some sort of little halfway entry into it, but not not my world, not right. my life. Right. Never went to comedy clubs. Yeah. In fact, hate comedy clubs to this day. <laughs> I'll go see my friends every once in a while. Right. But literally the day after my dad died, these comics started calling. Of course. And now, and and really because of Rick Overton and Paul Provenza, and really Provenza because he is this kind of connoisseur of comedy. Sure. Um, I am now... It was so incredible that first year between my dad's fans and the comics, how they embraced me. Mm -hmm. I would not have survived without them. I'm... And because of that, now I feel like I'm doing this work mm -hmm. and it's a whole different entree into it. Mm -hmm. You know, I know I have to, I know I have to show up. I have to have the goods. Right. I have to have my craft. I have to do the sure. work. But... I get to have a different conversation with them now, mm -hmm. and I and I and I'm I'm really honored by that conversation. Really, really honored that yeah. I get to be someone who gets to meet his fans and mm -hmm. and talk to him, and gets to to be with the comics now on a different level. You know that you know they they I'm yeah I'm George's daughter, but mm -hmm. he's not here hovering. I mean right. he's, he is always hovering. Of course, God of course. help us. <laughs> 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 but he's not physically hovering sure. anymore. You know I yeah. wouldn't show up going hey you know whatever. <laughs> um, you know I feel like I've been uh, embraced into the bosom of mm -hmm. the, of these comedy you know ladies and gentlemen. It in, does in such a beautiful take a way. bit to kind of wiggle your way in there though. You don't. It's not enough to be. Oh no! Anyone's daughter. That's no, not enough. not in this fucking not no. not with comedians. So that's I mean that's yeah. what's impressive on its own. Yeah. I mean it, it has to come somewhat. You, you a minute ago you're talking about the shadow, but at the same time it, a second later you're talking about would he do this? So you obviously there's obviously something about him that you emulate or that's very important to you to live up to. Yes, absolutely. You know, without, there's a standard, of course, a huge standard, and a lot of people maybe in your position wouldn't. Bitterness would maybe be overtaking them, you know what I yeah. mean? And to and to learn uh, so much about yourself, uh, especially creatively, as a result of just everything that you've gone through. Yeah. And again, still to appeal to comedians and impress them is, you know, yeah, it's you a know, big skill. I think the thing that my dad embodied, and and therefore I embody, and mm -hmm. my mother embodied it too. A real I'm and and comics and everyone who knew my mom. Uh, would stand behind me on this is we're an authentic family we're just yeah. authentic people mm -hmm. and I think that th in comedy that is everything yeah it is I mean especially nowadays it's it's sure. all about being authentic sure and um and I think that 
I think that serves me more than anything else in my craft. Mm -hmm. Learning my writing craft is important. Learning to be on stage has mm -hmm. been an, is 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 an incredible experience I'm having right now, and and improving my writing all the time. Um, but being comfortable in my own skin, sure, and really trusting myself mm -hmm. and knowing that I belong and I deserve to be here just because of the fact that I'm willing to try hard and to show up and do the work. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I have spent a lot of fucking years working on myself. Of course. I mean, you know, therapy up the fucking yazoo. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I, you know, and it's but it's always a balancing act too, you know, because you, it's the ego is such a little fucker mm -hmm. because it'll start to believe the press mm -hmm. or believe what you know. Oh, I'm part of this group now and oh look who's in my phone book and oh look who I hang out with and oh look who I can just call and look who texted me and this and my funny thing is my dad was always um, starstruck yeah and I'm always starstruck too mm -hmm. so a part of me is always like oh my god that's awesome that's so good though but the other part of me is like just breathe right. Kelly sure. just fucking breathe sure. they're just another person they shit just like you do <laughs> <laughs> and um and and don't and and you just got to remember to kind of come back into your own skin say that we're all humans here yeah we're just being real and um none of that ookie ookie energy i call right. it the ookie energy yeah. <laughs> do you i mean i'm finding at least from in, talking to a lot of people on this podcast i mean this is 62 some episodes now uh, I, I get the feeling, and this is just positive, makes me happy, that the tears of the clown comedian is slowly maybe going... I mean, if, if a man... Again, it sounds like you said, it's you had, you're had a real family. He doesn't sound like a man who's tearing himself apart constantly and just, you know, filled with self-hate. No. You know what I mean? That's such a thing. People really feel like they have to do that to be that. Uh, you know, you know I th to, to be funny. Yeah, I think he certainly... You know, he didn't have a daddy. Mm -hmm. I think he he had a you know his had some demons in his family. Absolutely. Sure. Um. I I think he was a man who was very driven. Sure. Extremely driven, perfectionistic. Uh, and and over the decades, you know, but also a man who had consciousness had the ability to finally witness himself and evolve. I mean, that is how one evolves. Is mm -hmm. you, you, you start to be able to see your own behavior in an objective way mm -hmm. so that you can change it. I mean, that is, I think, the definition of, of evolution of consciousness. Sure. And um, so we had that great ability. So he was always working on himself. But, you know, um, yeah. Who doesn't fucking have demons? Of course. Who doesn't of have course. darkness? But I think in general, I know at the end, he, um, you know, he he had found. God, we were at the um, the Paley Center mm -hmm. in Beverly Hills, and they were doing a tribute to him one night. It uh -huh. was just a few months. I mean, it was maybe like six weeks before he died. Oh, wow. And I think you can even go online and find it yeah it's incredible there was yeah. maybe 150 people. it's that really small theater yeah. at the paley center mm -hmm. maybe 150 people in that little theater oh, God. and he was 
I saw I saw in him that he got he was an elder statesman, mm-hmm. that he was the wise shaman in the room, mm-hmm. and that he was comfortable with that, mm-hmm. and that he was like this philosophical guy, yeah. and I saw peace in him, really did see peace in him, yeah. and I know that his personal life. I know he loved my mother dearly, but they had a lot of baggage in their mm-hmm. relationship from all those years. I know that when he met Sally uh, Wade and they were together until he died, that he had a lot of joy in that relationship. Mm-hmm. And I know he was tired of being on the road and traveling, but he was always hungry to do the next bit. Right, right. He, I, I mean, I have his computer. There's probably boy, the oh makings of two or three more HBO shows in there sure. in very raw, raw of form. Course. But there are files and files oh and God. files of stuff that I really haven't even looked at right. yet. Right. Um, I mean, I look at it every once in a while and just get overwhelmed by it all and of think, course. what am I supposed to do with all of this? Right. My chest gets tight. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but I don't know. The You know... I, I do really, though, believe that people, that comedians, the more I learn about comedy, and I thank Paul Provenza for this, because mm-hmm. he's really made me a student of comedy, getting to watch people, um, I look at what it's about, and I really see that people say to me, you know, what's, what's it like hanging out with them? Like, they are the smartest and kindest, for the most part, the smartest and the kindest people I know. Yeah. Comedians. Yeah. They're really sensitive souls, for yeah. the most part, but they're so fucking smart, they can't keep their mouth shut about <laughs> what's wrong on the planet or in themselves. Yeah. Because they're always digging and figuring out, what's this mean? What's this mean? What's this mean? And, and putting it out there in such a way that... Um, they're questioning it so that we can question it. Sure. And and they're funny. And mm-hmm. they're funny on top of all of that. Right. Because I think I do all that other stuff. That, I mean, I call myself a thinker and a communicator. Yeah. And an instigator. But I'm not driven to, like, get the laugh all okay. the time. Yeah. You know? Um, but I get that drive of, like... So there is something about... There's, there's an unrest. Mm-hmm. There's a famous Martha Graham quote mm-hmm. that my dad said to me probably 10 years ago and it is that an artist is never satisfied there's always an unrest in us there's always the minute you do something there's what's next yeah and so that darkness i think is absolutely essential for a comedian for sure you know um whether you have to like hate yourself and be like (laughs) killing yourself with drugs and alcohol and and scary sex all the time right I hope you don't have to be doing that. Yeah, well, I don't think you don't have. I don't think you do. No. Yeah, I don't think so. Um, but you know, there's always that in every crowd. For sure. Yeah. Um, I want to make sure that we we uh, get in uh, that you can tell everybody more about the show, where they can find you online. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So the show is called A Carlin Home Companion, and um, of course it's kellycarlin.com. Mm-hmm. I mean that. That just that has my whole universe in it. Um, I'm actually uh, doing the show in two nights uh, at the Acme. I'm doing it a lot at the Acme Comedy Theater in Hollywood. That's my new okay. home. Uh, in the fall, we just booked the theater. I'm going to New York City. 
That's crazy. I'm doing, and this is even crazier. I'm mm-hmm. doing a theater called the Players Theater. It's on McDougal Street in the village. Mm-hmm. It's in the same building as Cafe Wa. Uh huh. Cafe Wa is one of the places my daddy went to in the early '60s oh and did hoot nannies. Holy cow! With you know. Oh, Lenny Bruce and Joan Jesus Baez Christ. and people like that. So oh. it's in the same building. So I feel like I will be an emotional fucking wreck. Uh-huh. 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 <laughs> and I feel like the Carlins, uh, the Carlins are coming home. That's awesome. In October. Yeah. So, so I'm very excited about that. And then the other thing that I do weekly that I'm really proud of and actually where I, I really have helped me to discover my voice is my, is my podcast, uh-huh. which I do, which is called Waking from the American Dream which I completely took that title from my dad's bit. Uh, that great line he says, which is the reason they call it the American dream is because you have to be asleep to believe in it. <laughs> and when he said that, I went, fuck, he did that again. That poetry, <laughs> worldview shattering fucking thing he does. Um, and came up with that title, uh, you know, years years before my, uh, like a year after he did the show. Mm-hmm. And then I just wanted the title for something and started doing a documentary and then and then he went and died my whole life fucking changed of course and so now i do have a podcast <laughs> but i love the podcast and um i have i found my voice there That's i do awesome. it's really cool as i'm sure you found yours here Maybe. I just sit and listen to people talk and say, yeah, a lot. That's, that's what I've discovered about myself. But you're in, in your show. bliss. See, oh, that's what podcasting is about. Oh, yeah. Is being in your fucking bliss. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. No, this is the best thing. It's and then other people, about. like, have a similar bliss kind of zone. Mm-hmm. And they come to your podcast. They're like, oh, yeah. wow, that's my bliss, too. Yeah, it's, it's starting to seem that way. So, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, are you on Twitter? Oh, my God. I'm a fucking Twitter whore. <laughs> Kelly underscore Carlin and everyone makes fun of me because of the fucking underscore thing but I didn't know what Twitter was right. I thought you had to have a, like a little space between your two names sure. because that's the way you do it in the real world of course I didn't know the Twitterverse <laughs> was a special zone <laughs> I love Twitter I'm on there all the time and uh, I have way too many tweets um, so please come find me on Twitter and play there that's awesome. really where I hang out this has been amazing thank you so no, this, much fun thank you for letting me talk and are you kidding you're great question asker and i i'm a rambler i'm very good at that i will give you that <laughs> you're great thank you so much for doing my this. pleasure this has been a lot of fun everybody thank you for listening and as usual have a good thing Comedy on Vinyl is a production of Stolen Dress Entertainment. It is produced by Mike Warden and is hosted and edited by Jason Klom. Visit StolenDress.com to listen to our other podcasts, read our blogs, read our tweets, watch our videos, and read our books. Please subscribe on iTunes, rate us highly, and write your reviews. You can follow us on Facebook.com slash Comedy on Vinyl and Twitter at Comedy on Vinyl. Him rolling, he got ripping mad, his eyes were bulging out. He jumped upon the piano, and loudly he did shout. Who threw the overalls in Mrs. Murphy's chowder? Nobody spoke, so he shouted out.